eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his wonder and grace. One of the first choruses I learned as a young man who had become a Christian always meant a great deal to me. And I would imagine, whether you have sung that song or committed it to memory or not, that the message of it means a great deal to you as well. For, you know, the longer we live in this world, we, we recognize, indeed, that the things of this earth can be so hurtful, uh, so distressing, so fearful, so <clears throat> adverse to our well-being and our happiness. The song tells us that in the face of Jesus, nevertheless, all that adversity pales into insignificance. Uh, it's difficult to preach um, the sermon that I want to preach this morning uh, because you've already heard that someone needs it so badly in our congregation. I don't want to let him down. I don't want to let me down either. I need to hear the sermon. But you know what? I bet it's uh, more than a sermon for Gary and Greg. You don't have to stand up and tell the congregation, but I think that uh, each and every one of you know what it is to face something that is very hurtful, something that is perhaps fearful to you, something that is aggravating. Maybe it's personal opposition from somebody. Maybe it's the death of a loved one. Maybe it's the loss of a job. Maybe it's the turmoil and frustration of being a student. Maybe deadlines aren't being met. Maybe uh, you're having trouble within your own family. Maybe your health is weak in itself. I think all of us would be able to testify that there is something that hurts us that is a great temptation or trial in our lives. And so I'd like us to take a look at a text which, as it turns out again when I was a young Christian, uh, I learned very early I had a pastor who did a very good job of pastoring me when I was a young Christian and, and put me on a program of scripture memorization, which wasn't popular at that time and it's even less popular now. But I think it was the Navigators, actually, that put out a packet of cards that was, had memory verses on them. And I carried that with me everywhere. And I would memorize a verse, you know, and then when I got that one, I'd go to the next card and so forth. And the very first verse I memorized as a young Christian was 1 Corinthians 10.13, and that's part of our text this morning. So please turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10. I'd like to begin at the first verse, with our focus this morning being on the 13th verse of this chapter from God's Word. For I would not, brothers, have you ignorant that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual food, and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of a spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Howbeit, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples, to the intent we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us make trial of the Lord as some of them made trial and perished by the serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them murmured 
and perished by the destroyer. Now these things happened unto them by way of example, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages are come. Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth, take heed lest he fall. There is no temptation taken you but such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will with the temptation make also a way of escape, that you will be able to bear it. And thus far, the reading of God's word. Well, I began this morning by saying we all know what it is to face trial. We all know what it is to have adverse circumstances in our life. We're all afraid of something. We all know what it is to be tempted by Satan, to have besetting sins, to face situations where we just don't think there's any way out. We all know the frustration of those moments. And what counsel can you get from God's Word in facing those circumstances, which for each and every one of us are different, and yet for each and every one of us, in a very elementary way, are the same? Well, the counsel of God's Word is not the counsel of Stoicism. And I'm really happy that that's the case, because I don't think it'd be very easy to be a Stoic. The ancient Stoic philosophers had an impersonal view of the world. They did not believe in a personal God who had made all things and who was in communication with his uh, creature man and who was in control of everything that took place. They could not ever have said, as Paul did in Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good for those who are called according to God's purpose. Because for the ancient Stoics, there was no divine purpose in this world. There was just nature. There was just the world as we find it. Now, though, of course, there was, they thought, a kind of logos, a kind of reason that flowed through nature. There was something that organized nature and made it behave the way it does. However, the Stoics believed that it would do you no good to fight against the course of nature. When things are going against you, the Stoics said, you must simply decrease your desire to nothing and, if I could use our modern idiom, go with the flow of things. Just fit in. If nature is taking you down the path toward destruction, stiff upper lip, flow down to destruction. Where you see you can't fight nature. And there's nothing, there's no comfort, it's just a matter of being, as we say even today, stoic about it. Just kind of be a tough little soldier, you know, and go into the adversity, and whatever hurt there is there, you're going to have to write it out. Now, I praise God that that's not the message of our text this morning. Paul has something much more wonderful to tell us. Paul tells us three things about our trials, which I want you to make sure you learn. And I hope not just learn for this morning, but learn for the rest of your lives. Paul tells us three things about trials, the first of which is they are not unique. There is no temptation taking you but such as is common to man. There is nothing that has come into your life, nor will there ever be anything that comes into your life where you're the only one who has faced that situation. There has never been a heartache that you've experienced that someone hasn't experienced just like you. There has never been a betrayal there's never been an injustice. There has never been a sickness. There has never been a temptation to sin. There has never been a persecution that you face 
that someone else hasn't faced as well. Indeed, all of the things that go wrong in our lives, all of the adversity and all the different kinds of trials and temptations we face are human temptations and trials. They're all common to men, Paul tells us. Don't ever think of yourself as an exception. All men, at all times, face the same basic kinds of problems. The differences all have to do with names. The names may change. You know, the color of the clothing may change. The geographical region may change. The age and history may change, but the problems are the same. And that's one of the things Paul's telling us in this passage leading up to verse 13 in 1 Corinthians 10, where he says, Brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant. So I want you to understand that all these things you read about in the Old Testament about the wilderness wanderings, those things were not put in the Bible by God so that we'd have plenty of Sunday school material. God did not give us all those Old Testament stories just so we'd have enough to fill up time when we have to teach little children about religion. I think we all have that idea that the Old Testament and all those stories, well, those are entertaining, but, you know, we really need to get onto the doctrinal and ethical meat of the word. Paul says you've got it wrong. Don't be ignorant, brothers. These things were written for your admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And you say, but wait a minute, Paul. <laughs> we're not Jews. Uh, for the most part in this congregation, we're Gentiles. Moreover, Paul, those stories that you tell us about here have to do with people who are out wandering in the wilderness, across the desert. That's not like us. We're not in that circumstance. And those people had a different kind of culture altogether. They wore strange clothes. They had different kinds of family life. Their diet was different from ours. They didn't have cars or telephones. They're a different kind of people. But you know, Paul understands that this Jewish history can be applied to a Gentile church just because of what he says at the beginning of verse 13. There's nothing that ever comes into our life that isn't common to other human beings. There's no temptation taking you but such as is common to man. There's an old Negro spiritual. I know you all know the words to it. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. And, you know, that can be sung very mournfully and slow, and we can really get into the spirit of that. And when we're licking our own wounds, we can really feel that way. No one really knows how I hurt. No one really knows the frustrations that I have. No one knows the adversity and temptation of my life. But it's not true. And you'll never be able to face these trials and temptations in a godly way until you get that premise out of your mind. It is incorrect. Plenty have been in your situation. Many people know what that is. But, you know, the Bible has something even more wondrous to tell us than just that there are other men who have faced these trials. If you look at Hebrews 4, verse 15, you'll find some, something out that is even more comforting than what Paul says, I think, that other men know what we go through. Paul, uh, excuse me, the author of Hebrews tells us, can add to Paul's truth, for we do not have a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but one who has been in all points tempted just like we are, yet without sin. We are told that, uh, that there is one who has lived on the face of this earth. There is one who has come into the human situation 
who has faced not just those temptations which are common to men, but has faced all of the temptations men face. You realize that for whatever things you might feel bad about today in your life, no matter what the adversity, temptation, or trial may be, you don't face all of the different kinds of adversity of life, but Jesus did. Can you imagine that? Such a short life. Jesus was crucified at the end of his uh, earthly ministry, probably about the age 33. And in that short period of time, he not only went through what an individual might go through in 33 years of temptation and trial, but he went through all of the temptation trials of your life and of your neighbor's life and of your parents' lives and of your children's lives and of all the people of all the countries and all the ages that have ever lived in 33 years. Every single kind of temptation or trial he had to face because if this was going to be a test of whether he would obey God through adversity, whether he'd learn obedience through the things that he uh, uh, went through, he would have to face all of it. And if he didn't, he wouldn't be the great high priest that he is. The author of Hebrews says, you understand that the high priest you come to and through whom you pray to God, this high priest knows exactly what you're talking about. He knows exactly how you hurt. He knows exactly what you're afraid of. He knows exactly what it is to be tempted and yet without sin. And so let's get this premise out of our minds that no one has ever known the trouble I've seen. There are no special cases. And if there are no special cases, then you know there's an ethical truth that we have to draw from that, and that's that we can't make any excuses for ourselves. We cannot shift blame. We cannot feel pity for ourselves because we're not alone. So the ethical implication is don't think of yourself as a special exception and then start disobeying God's word, thinking, well, of course, God will understand. No one's ever been in this situation. I've got to kind of do it on my own, got to do it my own way. That's not true. Not only is there an ethical exhortation found in the fact that there are no exceptions, uh, what you're facing, everyone else has faced in one way or another. There's a great encouragement in that, too, because what we learn from this is that the situation isn't helpless. If others have made it through these situations, then so can you. You're not alone. Not only are you not alone to figure out the ethical guidance you need in that very awkward situation, but you're not alone and that should encourage you that you can make it. Others have. In fact, others have probably had it worse than you and they've made it. You see, the Christian should realize that with the confidence that this verse can offer, no matter what the situation is you face, it is not unique, and you can, despite the storm outside, be like a regularly clicking, ticking, working and functioning clock within. Just imagine that, you know, you have a clock on your fireplace mantle, and you've got one of these terrible storms that sometimes come across Southern California off the sea, and and trees are being blown down, and, and the rain is beating against the windows, and the electricity has gone out. But you know that clock over the fireplace that you wound? Just tick, 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 tick. A beautiful picture of the Christian going through the storms and the adversity of life because there's an inner, you see, there's an inner clock that is functioning just right. So the first thing you have to remember about your trials, the first truth 
Paul lays before us is that our trials are not unique. The second is this. Our trials are not unrestrained. Our trials are not unrestrained. For he tells us, there is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able. But God is faithful, and will not allow the temptation to go beyond your limit. Imagine that. These temptations, you see, are under God's control. God sent this temptation into your life. God sent this adversity into your life because God sovereignly decrees the end from the beginning. God has a plan for all of history. And every single detail of our lives falls into that plan, from the hairs on our head to a sparrow that falls from the sky. God is sovereign. God is in control. And therefore, no matter how bleak the situation, as far as your outward appearance, God is controlling it. And if God is controlling it, Paul wants you to know something. He'll never let it go too far. God's got the reins in his hands. And he's not going to let that situation get out of control. Things are not going to get too much for you. It will never go too far because God knows your limits. Sometimes in the midst of... Uh, a great deal of frustration, disappointment, heartache, whatever it may be. People in pastoral counseling will say, Pastor, I just can't take it anymore. And you know, my heart goes out to people who say that because I've had that experience. I've said that inwardly and outwardly in other circumstances. I know the frustration that leads to that kind of thinking, but I also know that it's wrong. Yes, you can take it. You can take everything that is dished out to you because the one who's dishing it out knows your limits and he'll never give you too much. You may think he's brought you right up to the edge of the line sometimes, but the Bible assures you he never gives you too much. He knows how to take care of you. He knows you inside and out. Who knows you better than God, your maker? Who knows your heart? Who knows your mind, your emotions, your physical abilities? Who knows your social circumstances? Who knows your psychology better than the Lord? No one. The Bible says he'll never put you in a situation where, knowing everything about you, he pushes you too far. You should remember as well that um, the strongest attacks that are going to be made by Satan are going to be made against the strongest forts that he can find. That's the way it is in warfare. You know, you don't send out the, the, the chief part of your military establishment and the pow most powerful part of your host against the weakest link of your enemy. You save the toughest assaults for the toughest part of their defense. And to the degree that you are leading a Christian life, to the degree that you are making a sincere effort to know God's word and put it into practice in your life, to the degree that you are practicing righteousness in all of your affairs, to that degree, you can expect more adversity and more trial, more assaults from Satan. For you see, that person living next to you who also professes Christ, who really doesn't care, who doesn't read his or her Bible or pray or go to church regularly, who doesn't make an effort to be sanctified and get his or her life into order, Satan doesn't have to work on that person very much. They're doing enough damage to themselves just as they are. But to the degree that you lead a righteous life, Satan says, hey, I need more firepower here. We've got to lay it on pretty thick on this person. So you remember that. 
When things are looking their bleakest for you, just remember where it's coming from and who it is that wants you to fail. And who do you think faced the, the toughest temptation of all? It was our Lord Jesus Christ. Because, of course, that was the strongest link in God's army. That was, the, that was the one that Satan had to bring down if there was any hope of victory for him. And so you see him in the wilderness, unrelenting for 40 days and 40 nights, trying to bring Jesus to disobey his father. Now, there are different kinds of trials, temptations, and adverse circumstances. I've already said that. I realize that. But just think of what Jesus went through. Forty days and forty nights without eating, and Satan comes and says, I'll make you a loaf of bread. Now, you make a loaf of bread. Why not, Jesus? You've got the power to do it. How would you like someone to tempt you with eating after you haven't for forty days? Satan laid it on thick. And likewise, he's going to lay it on thick for us to the degree we try to lead a Christian life. So if you want all your trials and temptations to go away, I can give you a counsel of despair. I can say, stop being a Christian. Give up on Bible reading. Don't pray. Don't think about God. Be as satanic as you possibly can be, because then Satan will leave you alone. You know that isn't, of course, what God's Word would have you do. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 7, Peter reminds us of the same truth that Paul is bringing out when he says, but God is faithful. God is faithful. No matter how much Satan lays on you, God is faithful. In 1 Peter 1, at the fifth verse, Peter says, speaking of us, who by the power of God are guarded through faith unto a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if need be, you have been put to grief in manifold trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold that perisheth, though it is proved by fire, may be found unto praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ whom not having seen, ye love, on whom now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice greatly with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Because you know you're guarded by the power of God to a salvation that's going to be revealed in the last time. And since you know God is the one who is guarding you and God is holding you in the palm of his hand, since you know he's in control and he'll never push you too far and you know he is faithful, then even though for a short while now during this life we may face manifold trials, we rejoice with joy unspeakable. Or we should. So often we get kind of down about our trials and we kind of forget the kind of universe we live in and the circumstances and context of our lives. We have to remember we're not Stoics. We don't live in an impersonal universe where reason and nature are just carrying us along. We live in a universe where a personal creator God determines every single detail of our lives. And that God is a faithful God and that is a loving God. And he cares for you and never gives you too much and guards you to the last day. And so we can rejoice with joy unspeakable. You know, even if others have proved unfaithful in your lives, I've known people for whom it seems not a single individual has ever been true and loyal to them. Their parents let them down. 
Their school will let them down. Their friends have let them down. Their family may have left them and turned against them. There are people who know what it is to see others unfaithful. But the Bible says, but God is faithful. And he'll never turn his back on you. He'll always guard you and make sure that the circumstances of your life are hemmed in and restrained such that you never get pushed too far. And so Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, Be sober, be watchful. Your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walks about seeking whom he may devour, whom withstand steadfast in your faith, knowing that the same sufferings are accomplished in your brothers who are in the world. We had a prayer request this morning about our brothers who are suffering around the world, those who are being persecuted politically for their faith or even thrown in prison, being deprived of the sorts of things we enjoy and take for granted day by day. Peter says, you withstand Satan steadfast knowing that the same sufferings are, look at that word, being accomplished in your brothers. Suffering is not something we just passively endure. It amounts to something we accomplish. Be faithful. Stand firm, because God is faithful. In James 1, verses 2 through 4, James says something that the world just can't understand. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into manifold temptations, knowing that the proving of your faith works patience. And let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, lacking in nothing. In verse 13, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no man. James tells us that we should count it joy when we fall into these temptations. He says God's not trying to bring you down. The one who's trying to bring you down is Satan. God allows him to do this even as he allowed Satan to tempt Job. But why is he doing it? Well, James says, knowing that the proving of your faith works patience, and patience will have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, lacking in nothing. The reason why you have trials and temptations is because there's something lacking in your life. Well, I'll tell you, there's a real switch. We don't think that way. We tend to think that this trial and temptation comes into my life to take something away from me. God sends a trial or temptation in your life to give something to you. God sends trials and temptations into your lives to fill you up, to make you perfect and entire. You see, there's something that you need to learn as a Christian. There, there are problems you need to go through to develop that character, that holiness of inner disposition and heart, which is lacking right now. And God knows that. He not only knows your limits, he knows what you need to be filled up as a Christian. And so he sends these things. He allows Satan to try to bring you down, but gives you the strength to withstand and promises to guard you. And so, my friends, we need to learn to count on God. Whenever a trial or temptation comes into your life, the first thing you need to say is there's hope. There's hope. There is real hope because God's in control and God's guarding me. And indeed, Paul says, all things do work together for good, doesn't he? Turn to Romans 8, verse 28. And I'm going to read that verse, which is so well known, but I, you know the passage is more glorious than just that verse. We need to read beyond that as well. Romans 8, at the 28th verse. And we know that to them that love God, 
all things work together for good, even to them that are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also foreordained to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he foreordained, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ Jesus that died, yea, rather, that was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or anguish, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or the sword? Even as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all of God's people said, Amen. Can anything take away the love of Jesus Christ? How, if God delivered him up to the cross, how can God fail to give us all things. If he went to that limit and extent that he would have his own son crucified that you might be brought home to glory one day, how could God ever let us down? Oh no, in all these things Paul says. And you know it's Paul who says this. And you know that really has got to get to you. Because you know when I think about my life and the persecutions and temptations and trials and adversity, it is nothing in comparison to this man who was many times stoned and left for dead, whipped, cast out, rejected, ridiculed, a man who knew adversity and pain and sickness, a man who wouldn't even be supported by those to whom he preached, a man who was constantly being betrayed and pursued. And Paul says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors, not just conquerors, more than conquerors. Paul can't even find the words to express the fact that the victory is ours. And if Jesus died for us, then nothing can stand between us and God. Nothing can break that bond of love. And so you can count on God. What do you know about your trials now? Well, you know first they're not unique. They're not. Others have seen what you've seen. And Jesus has seen what you've seen. So be encouraged. Don't make excuses for yourself. Your trials are not unique. Secondly, you know your trials are not unrestrained. God controls them, and God loves you, and God will never have you separated from his love. And then thirdly, you need to realize that your trials are not inescapable. Your trials are not a matter of hopeless, uh, a matter of a hopeless dead end. They are not inescapable.
You know, sometimes we have a way of saying, um, when God's Word tells us to do something, or when the pastor preaches that to you, or tells you in private counseling, you need to do this to take care of that problem, we have a way of saying, well, I just can't. That's just not me. That's just asking too much. I can't do it. And I'm going to say to you now, more bluntly than I probably say to you in private, because it's so hard to do, but I need to tell you, whenever a Christian says, I can't, it has to be translated, I won't. Because there is no I can't for the Christian. There isn't. Look at Philippians 4, verse 13. Paul writes to the Philippians at the end of his life, from prison, when men are seeking to uh, increase his bondage and his persecution, when he can't find anyone around him worthy except Timothy to send to the Philippians to help, Paul is in prison in terrible circumstances. And in Philippians 4, verse 13, he says, I can do all things through him that strengthens me. I can do all things. <laughs> you know, the world would laugh. What do you mean, Paul? You're there in chains. Soldiers are surrounding you. Your friends are betraying you. And Paul says, I can do all things through Christ because he strengthens me. And so when you say, Pastor, I can't. I can't change my attitude. I can't control my feelings. I can't get rid of my anger. I can't learn a new way of doing things. I just can't relate to that person any better. I can't go and make restitution. I can't, I can't, I can't. And every time you hear those words, I want you at least in your mind to be hearing, I won't, I won't, I won't. Because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. 2 Timothy 1.7 What does Paul say to this young pastor? For God gave us not a spirit of fearfulness, but of power and love and discipline. What do you mean you can't? God's given you the spirit of power and love and discipline. Of course you can do what God tells you to do. Look at 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And he hath said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It's a very powerful passage because, you see, there you see Paul. He, too, knows weakness and suffering and trial. He has a thorn in the flesh, and he says three times, I begged God to take it away from me. And God's answer each time was, my strength is sufficient for you, Paul. Don't give up. Because, you see, my power is perfected in weakness. Because when you're broken down and when you think you can't take it anymore, when you feel you just don't have the resources, then you'll finally see what your resource is. It's me. And when you're broken down to the point where your only hope is to cry out to me and to depend on me, then you'll find you have all the power you ever needed. 
My power is perfected in weakness. Christian, don't say you can't do what God says. You can't change your attitude. You can't have a better view of your trials and temptations. If you say you can't, what you must mean is you won't, because God is sufficient. And he's given you a spirit of power and discipline, and you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Every problem has a way out. Every single one of them. 2 Peter 2.9 It's another cross-reference to this thought. And it's worth reading. 2 Peter 2, at the ninth verse, we read, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment under the day of judgment. God knows how to deliver the godly. God knows things you don't know. You may be facing a financial crisis. You say, I don't see any way out. God knows the way out. You may be facing an interpersonal problem with somebody. You say, I don't know the way out. God knows the way out. You may be facing a situation where you just don't have any idea how you can make it through because of the physical torment it involves. But God knows how to deliver the godly. You may be having a besetting sin that is so strong in your life and temptation so intense from Satan that you just don't think you can endure anymore. You're going to give in, but God knows how to deliver you. There's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to men. But God is faithful, who will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you'll be able to bear it. By the way, the way of escape is not always miraculous. That was in the case of Paul and Silas. Remember them in the Philippian jail? There they were in these shackles. They were going to be tried. I mean, they had no hope. And at midnight, they're singing praises to God. And the, uh, you can imagine the prisoners around them were thinking, you guys just don't understand what's going on. You must be on drugs or something. How did God deliver them? Well, they didn't know how God was going to deliver them. They had no idea. God sent an earthquake. And the prison fell down, and their chains fell off. Now, that isn't the way God delivers us today, not in all circumstances. I believe in miracles. I really do. don't believe in the gift of miracles, but I do believe in miracles. God may heal your body. God may have a check sent to you from somebody you don't even know. God may send, for all we know, your groceries from heaven. He might, but that isn't always the way out. I think more often than not, it's not through miracles that God delivers his people, but it's through teaching them how to endure trial, how to deal with interpersonal problems, how to understand death, how to deal with your financial affairs. God has provided a way of escape in every situation. And so what do we know from this passage? Just a small little verse. First one I ever memorized as a Christian. Well, you learn a great deal, don't you? You learn that your trials are not unique. You learn that your trials are not unrestrained. And you learn that your trials are not inescapable. And so what, by way of conclusion, can I leave with you to help you? Because you're facing trials. Some of you have confessed that today. We've heard about it during prayer time. And those of you who haven't, I think, were nodding your heads when I said, I bet you've got something you're facing you don't like either. There are problems in all of our lives. There's adversity that we all face. What do you want to do about that? Well, I'm going to give you a quick six-point conclusion here. It's going to have to be quick or we'll never get out of here. First of all, look at your attitude and change it. 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5 tells us 
that we can have a spirit of victory. 1 John 5, at the fourth verse, For whatsoever is begotten of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? You need a spirit of victory. At the very first sign of something that depresses you, at something that worries you, at something that, that is frustrating to you or breaks your heart, remember, you need to have a spirit of victory. For this is what overcomes the world, even our faith. Overcomes everything. Jesus said, in this world, we're going to have trials and temptations, but our faith overcomes the world. So have a different attitude toward it. Secondly, learn to pray the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That Lord's Prayer is a model prayer. You don't have to use those exact words, but those sentiments are crucial. Learn to pray. Don't you have to admit that, that when you have trials and temptations that begin to bring you down, you haven't been praying very much. I just don't think it's possible to be a warrior in prayer and to be put down by your trials and adversities. Prayer is great strength. Prayer delivers us from the evil one. And so learn to pray. Have a spirit of victory, an attitude that says, my faith can conquer the world, secondly, and be a person of prayer. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. And thirdly, give no place to the devil. As Paul says in Ephesians 4.27, don't give any place to the devil. You know what that means? Don't give him an inch. You may, you may think Satan wants to win the whole victory in one day. He wants to make all 100 yards and a touchdown in your life right then. But you don't understand Satan. He's willing to take an inch at a time. He's got time, and everything he can get from you, he'll take. Give him not an inch, Paul says. Not an inch to Satan. Don't give in once. When you find yourself pitying yourself, don't do it. Don't. Stop now. Don't say, I'm going to cry and pity myself 30 more minutes, and then finally I'm going to act like a Christian. Not an inch. Not a moment to Satan. Don't give him anything. The Bible tells us in James 4, verse 4, if we resist Satan, he'll flee from us. So the next time you start finding that your attitude is bad or that you're getting down about things, resist Satan, and you're going to find, without even being able to understand it, that those attitudinal problems are going to go away. They're just going to flee. Resist him. He must flee. And as Paul says in Ephesians, too, about the whole armor of God, you need to beware of the wiles of the devil. You need to know his schemes. You need to know the way he operates. You need to know the way he brings you down. Maybe you're trying to break a bad habit, and you fall into that habit. Satan knows how defeated you will get. And Satan will say, see, you can't do it. What a louse you are. Of course, it's not true. That's not at all the case. You've got the power of God at your disposal. You can get up and say, God, I'm sorry, and make a new beginning. But Satan would rather have you say, well, since you've fallen now, give up. Just give up. That's one of his schemes, friends, and he has many. He has a bag of tricks you just wouldn't believe. So Paul says, you better know the wiles of the devil and use the whole armor of God against him. Give him not an inch. Fourthly, the Bible tells us in Romans 12, 21, not to be overcome with evil, but to overcome evil with good. In those uh, situations where your opposition comes from malice and personal sources, the Bible would say, don't be passive. 
Of course, there are a lot of, you know, people would say don't be passive. You have the old Dirty Harry mentality in our world that says we're not going to sit back and take this. We're going to blow you away. But that isn't what the Bible says. The Bible says be very active. Don't sit still and put up with it. Go out there and do something good for your enemies. That'll drive them crazy. Go do what is right toward those who are treating you wrong. Overcome evil with good. And the Bible says, learn to obey God. In Psalm 119, 165, we have some very uh, wonderful insight, really, on the part of the psalmist. Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Old Testament, at verse 165. Look what David writes. Great peace have they that love thy law, and they have no occasion of stumbling. Do you love the Word of God? Do you love His commandments? Do you see them as a delight? Do you see them as light to your feet? Do you see them as healing to your soul? Do you see the righteousness of God's law? Do you love it and keep it? Great peace will you have if you love that law. And in those who keep that law, there's no occasion for stumbling. Proverbs 1, verse 33 Along the same lines, we read, But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell securely, and shall be quiet without fear of evil. Hearken unto the Lord, listen to his word, obey it, love his commandments, and you'll have great peace, and there'll be no occasion for stumbling in you. And then one more piece of advice, and I promise to stop. Hebrews 2, verse 18. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his wonder and grace. The author of Hebrews says, For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is now able to succor them that are tempted. Because Jesus has suffered and has been tempted. He now is in a position to help and strengthen those who are being tempted likewise. Remember what kind of high priest you have. One who sympathizes with your needs and has gone through it all and can give you the strength to endure it. A spirit of victory. The prayer to be led from temptation and away from the evil one. Giving no place to the devil, not even an inch. Overcoming evil with good. Not sitting still and letting things happen to you. Obeying God's law that you might have great peace of mind. And looking into the face of Jesus, a high priest who says, I understand and I care. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he will direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear Jehovah and depart from evil. And it will be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. Honor Jehovah with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty and thy vat shall overflow with new wine. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord. Neither be weary of his reproof. For whom Jehovah loves 
he reproves, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. Happy is the man that finds wisdom and the man that gets understanding. For the gaining of it is better than the gaining of silver and the profit thereof than of fine gold. She is more precious than rubies and none of the things that thou canst desire are to be compared unto her. Length of days is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her, and happy is every one that retaineth her. Let's pray. Lord, teach us to understand our trials. Teach us to reject the ridiculous notions of those who would be stoic or carefree, those who would be insensitive or foolish in their approach to the adversity of life. Help us from your holy word to get our minds straight and our attitudes changed. Help us to see that nothing that happens to us is unique. Nothing that happens to us is unrestrained because you're in control. And nothing that happens is without an escape because you know how to deliver the godly from trial. Lord, please help us in our trials. There are so many of so many different kinds. We hurt in so many ways. We fear so many things. We are tempted all along the road of life. We pray that you would guard us to the final day and teach us not to lean unto ourselves, but to look unto you, to know that your grace is sufficient in trial. Indeed, to look into the face of your dear Son whenever we need help, to know that he knows how to help those who are as weak as we are. And we thank you for the love you've shown us. We thank you for the care that you display for us day by day and pray that you would forgive us of our sins, for our faithlessness, for our lack of trust. Forgive us for our disobedience. Cleanse us by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, and give us that measure of his Spirit by which we can have courage, by which we can be more than conquerors no matter what happens to us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.